immersive audio podcast in conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined by Darren Emerson. Darren is a producer, director, and co-founder of VR City and East City Films. Today, Darren talks to us about his journey into VR, the projects he's involved in, and different aspects of 360 filmmaking. We learn how funding is developed for creatives and how the availability of financial support is helping to expand and grow the industry. We are at the East City Films office um, having a beer after a rainy day shoot. Um, everything went well. Yeah, and luckily, at last, uh, I have a chance to speak to Darren and ask my questions. So, hey, Darren, how are you today? I'm good, thanks, Ollie. <laughs> I'm, I'm very well. Uh, we just got back from shooting, so uh, and you were on the crew, so uh, it was all good. Exactly. Let's not pretend uh, this was all set up in advance. Um, I have to admit that I have been chasing Darren for months to get this interview. He's an incredibly busy man. Finally, we had a, we have a chance to sit down and talk about things. So, how did the shoot go? Uh, it went well. I mean, it's the end of a long sort of shooting process for the current project that we're doing, uh, which is a documentary that we're making uh, on a housing estate in South London. So, um, it's been it's been sort of almost a year in the making actually so um and and going back and forth and actually the the estate is not too far from the office so it means that instead of sort of i guess it means that you can always pop back and get something that you missed so there's always an opportunity and once you have that option you end up finding yourself popping back quite often to just get another shot or another or something that didn't work in the edit which is you know, if you do a shoot in, say, Uganda or something like that, which we've also done together, you can't pop back there and do some pickups. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, it was a good shoot today. Hopefully it's the last one down there um, because we've got to finish it soon. So we've, we've got to really focus on post-production instead of shooting stuff on the estate. So it's certainly a very big and interesting project and I would love to come back to it and ask a few more questions because there's a lot of things to unpack in, in, in terms of various aspects of production. Darren, can you introduce yourself and tell a few words about what you do? Well, my name is Darren Emerson. I am the co-founder of East City Films, which is a production company that's been running now for 12 years. Um, I run it with my business partner, Ashley Cowan. Uh, we, he's, he's, sitting right there, he's sitting right behind us, so that's why I have to mention him. Mm. Um, I can't take all the credit. Mm. <laughs> uh, and also we've got uh, Conan uh, Roberts over here, who's our head of post-production, who's busy away uh, stitching the material that we shot earlier. So, um, yeah, so EC Films, we've been working uh, for 12 years as an independent production company. Our background is sort of music TV, uh, youth TV, and branded content. 
But about, I would say about four to maybe four and a half, five years ago now, uh, we started working in virtual reality and specifically in 360 video, which was, I guess, the natural extension of the workflows that we are used to with TV and film. So I'm, I'm curious to hear, how did you end up in the VR industry? Was it more of a happy accident kind of thing or as soon as you realized there's this new technology available, you were keen to try it out in your professional career? I think it was more of a happy accident, really. I mean, um, actually, my business partner had a call from uh, a friend of his who also became a client working for a big company, a big educating uh, educator uh, who, do, who do a lot of work in uh, vocational courses and all sorts of stuff. And they wanted us to make something for them in 360 video. So this is the end of 2014. And... Um, we had never done anything like that before. We hadn't worked in 360 video. And actually, you know, in terms of this latest stage of VR, it's still kind of early doors, really. And um, and so we took that opportunity. We, we basically said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. And then we kind of worked it out, you know, behind closed doors. And uh, and so we, you know, we, we got the GoPro rig, uh, the, you know, the really early one. I can't remember what it's called now. Maybe Freedom 360. Um, and and we some of the sort of kind of early software and and to started to kind of work out how to do it really and then from that point onwards i think it just it just kind of exploded from there because there wasn't many people doing it and there still isn't really that many people doing it uh it, there's obviously been sort of more people entering the market from a production perspective in all different sorts of kind of uh, silos, maybe audio or theatre people doing VR and all this, all this kind of different stuff. But for us at that time, it was very much uh, a new landscape. And I think, you know, if I'm being honest, you know, we had been working in a particular part of the TV and branded content industry for a long time, and it offered a new opportunity for us that was exciting. It was creative. It was it involved a lot of problem solving. Um, and it allowed us to to basically do something different, and uh, and so that was very attractive uh, to us. And then from there, we kind of went out and to see what we could do with it. And so we worked with kind of brand clients pretty much straight away. Worked with MTV pretty much straight away. And I guess one of the things that I did as a as a creator of VR is is go out and make a documentary that I really wanted to make in VR, which I did in 2015. And that really, for me personally, as, as, as well as for the company, sort of put us, stood us in good stead because that was received really, really well. Having an opportunity to be involved with VR content production, do you think that enabled you to transform a business and, that, and take it to a different direction? Now, four or five years on, majority of the projects you work on are immersive content or is it kind of a mixture of both? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time we really embraced um, we really embraced VR and 360 video specifically, and I mean, as I mentioned, we, we'd been working for 12 years in, in making music videos, live performance, OBs, all sorts of kind of different stuff, um, and there was a lot of competition in 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 that arena, and and we saw an opportunity, I guess, in. 360 and VR to be a leader or somebody at the forefront of that. And with that, in a business sense, that offered an opportunity to get more clients, be able to set yourself apart from other production companies that we had traditionally been sort of uh, in competition with. 
So, so that was something really good for us. And I think we definitely saw an increase in the amount of work that we were doing and, and 360 was a, was a major part of that. I would say over the last four years, I would say like 80% of our work has been in 360 and VR. But that, but that has also been a conscious choice on our part to really push that part of our business, talk about that, that part of our business in a way that we never really talked about our normal production uh, work, which, which you could see maybe as, 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 as us sort of kind of actually getting to a stage in our overall business where we actually kind of understood uh, how to leverage this opportunity and the work that we're doing in, in a more effective way, which we hadn't done in the past. So I think in a way it was like all, all these things collided to uh, offer us an opportunity and we, we recognized it as an opportunity, so, so we went with it. And so in a business sense, that was good. But I think more than a, just a business sense, in a creative sense, it, I feel like we've done our best work that we've ever done in any medium uh, since, since we've been working in 360 and VR. And, and I, I think that has, has created a lot of job satisfaction. It's meant that we've traveled an awful lot. It means, it means that we get to talk about interesting things, um, new technologies, we get to experiment and also we get to access funding that allows us to make original work as well. And I think before VR, we were really much more a production company that was uh, a gun for hire in many ways. We were good at what we did, but we weren't really making our own uh, original IP and VR allowed us to, to actually start doing that and find our own voice. Just for a second, I, I want to go back to the inception of the East City Films company as an idea. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? How how did you guys meet? How did the idea of setting up the company came about? And what were the initial steps? East City Films, we set that up in... We Actually, we, we just got a card through the post from somebody trying to sell us finance uh, saying, happy 12th, 12th uh, anniversary. And we were like, oh, wow. No, we're not going to have finance from them, but you know, it's it's kind of it was a reminder of like, oh, we've been trading for that long. So it was around about October, two thousand and six that we actually registered the company, and myself and Ashley, and there was one other person that was part of our uh, our company at that time, uh, a guy called Greg, and we had all met uh, initially at MTV, and uh, and then we'd gone on to work as freelancers in um, the. UK TV system, but predominantly, again, in sort of music and youth TV, like T4 and, and stuff like that, and uh, CD UK, which Ashley always mentions, uh, given half the chance. Yeah, so, but I think out of all of those, MTV was, is, the, is the big one for us, and MTV was like a family for us. We, we all started our TV careers there, and um, when we started our company, it was really a desire just to be our own bosses and, and to be truthful about it, we probably were not in the best position to start our own company when we did. We were young, we hadn't really matured or, or made it in the industry that we were already in. You know, we were good at what we did, but we were very much sort of jobbing PDs or production managers, stuff like that. We weren't like exec producers who had loads of connections to commissioners and stuff like that. We were just, we just wanted to be creative and we didn't really want to have to answer to anybody else. But of course, the the truth of running your own business is that you're constantly, you know, answering to other people. It, it doesn't change. You still have clients. You still have deadlines. You still have 
compromises to make. It's just that you can do it within the sort of four walls of your office and, and, and uh, scream at the wall if you need to. Yeah, so MTV is a, big, is a big thing for us. And a lot of the people that we still work with, uh, a lot of our work still comes from people that, that came through that sort of alumni. And uh, it's been very good to us and a very rich, fertile sort of kind of breeding place for like really good people who work in TV and, um, and, and beyond. Yeah, I can't agree more. The networking is, you know, it's, it's, it's a backbone of all the creative industries. That's how you get work. I'm curious to hear, what was that tipping point for you guys when you realized we need to set up the company? What was that reason? Or were perhaps a number of reasons? I'm not sure if there was a, exactly a tipping point. I think there was... I mean, I think actually for me, I, was made, I, I took voluntary redundancy from MTV. And um, luckily, you get to sometimes you get to choose when you uh, when you take that redundancy, and uh, and that gave me uh, a bit of money, um, not much, but enough to to maybe take a chance at doing something like this without it being sort of life or death, because it's very hard to start your own company when when you've got no money in the bank, you know, and you're going to start from day one living like, oh, I need to get the work in. So actually, we started we started like that, but we also we were also freelancing for a while before we had an office and before we like, you know, so we were doing it. We were moonlighting basically. And, uh, and then we got a small office in Shoreditch and then we were there for a couple of years and then we got a larger office in Shoreditch uh, where we've been for 10 years. And that's where we are at the moment. The four walls you are in now, which is a, which is a office that we've had for, for a really long time now. And it's full of full of drives, full of old bits of tech that are redundant now and, and full of like new bits of tech that, we've, you know, that we keep buying and stuff. So uh, it's, a, it's a place that if we ever have to move, which we might do next year, I, I, it's a daunting prospect to go through the drawers and the cupboards and just chuck away like all the stuff that, that we'll find. So uh, yeah, it, yeah it's, we've definitely got our feet under the table in here. You guys might have to take like a week off holidays to collectively deal with that? Uh, yeah, maybe more. <laughs> it's scary. When we decided to do it, we were just full of enthusiasm. Uh, see you, Conan. Uh, we were just full of enthusiasm and and we thought that we could do it. And of course, like, you know, we were, we were much younger. And of course, actually running your own business is really, really hard. And I think the, the first thing that we learned that actually running a business is a full-time job let alone being a producer, a director, production manager. And often as, as, as a small business, you find that you are doing everything. And that can be quite draining after a few years. You, you, you know, it's like, it's like you've, you're, you're speaking to the clients, but you're also the producer who has to have kind of maybe harsh words with the clients if things aren't going right or, or there's something wrong with the budget. And you're also helping, like, get the kit down the stairs sometimes or sweeping up at the end. You know, it's just, it's, it can be kind of faintly ridiculous. But what I always knew about us was that we were really good at what we did. Like, and we could do it, we could do it all. You know, Ash, you know, runs the company with me, but he was also a really good editor and a really good producer. I was a good production manager. And since VR started, I've started directing and doing stuff like that. So it's been challenging to find our way through that and not get totally consumed by actually just running a business. And I think actually for when VR came along, it allowed us to kind of step back a little bit and realize, you know, why do you go into business for yourself? Is it because you want to have a really successful 
corporation with like hundreds of people working for you? Is it because you actually wanted the license to make interesting work that you had some creative um, freedom? Uh, or is it because you hope to earn lots of money? I mean, there's also different reasons. I think what I learned, you know, about eight years in, once we started doing VR, was what I really wanted was the creative freedom, the ability to make interesting work that, that, that spoke about the things that I was interested in. And for the eight years previously, I'd been so consumed with, you know, paying invoices, finding receipts, you know, doing the risk assessments, doing call sheets or this, whatever it was, you know, that you lose sight of that. And it was, you know, it was a, VR was a great opportunity to actually reconnect with, with that. And I feel that we're so much happier and better for it. So you've worked on a number of projects that have been quite successful, including picking up film festival awards that essentially enable you to put yourself on the map and be recognized in the industry. And I just would like to ask a few questions about those initial two projects. The first one was the Witness 3677. Could you tell us a little bit more about that project specifically? Yeah, sure. I mean... Um... Once we kind of started working in VR and we were doing some stuff for clients, you know, I had a real desire creatively to go and make a documentary in 360. And um, I think, you know, I'd just seen Clouds Over Sidra and I think it was at that time when, you know, uh, Within had just launched their app and stuff. So we were kind of looking at all that stuff and uh, really loved Clouds Over Sidra, but, but felt that, you know, I think it was a kind of a light bulb moment in that, you know, it was actually quite simple, Clouds of Sidra, that, that, that actually this was something that I could go out and try my, try and do something myself, you know, have my own voice in. So it was coming up to, it was 2015, and it was coming up to the 10-year anniversary of uh, the 7-7 bombings in uh, London, which was a terrorist uh, atrocity in London, and, uh, and it happened on the Tube. And so I started sort of independently uh, working on finding a contributor, somebody who'd survived the bombing to, to, to be part of this documentary. And after speaking to a few people and, and gaining the trust of uh, some of the charities that represent some of the survivors of uh, uh, the, the London bombings, who incidentally sort of face a lot of kind of uh, stigma from certain circles that think that it's a conspiracy theory and all sorts of kind of weird stuff like that, you know, it's just bizarre, uh, the stuff that you hear. But, you know, once you get, you know, you got their trust, I met this lady called uh, Jackie Putnam. And we met for a drink uh, near King's Cross. And she spoke to me that night. And I was just like, I was, you know, it was one of those moments where I, I felt like if I had a recorder there and then, I could have just like recorded it straight away. And, um, but I knew that she was an amazing storyteller in her own right. She was able to sort of unpack her experiences in a very lyrical, poetic way that it felt to me that she would make a great subject uh, for the, this documentary. So the approach to that was actually, you know, I was listening to a lot of podcasts actually and, and you know, kind of stories um, being told in, in terms of in just audio, you know, in those audio landscapes. And so I felt to myself that if I could capture her story in audio and then put sort of imagery uh, around it, that that would be a really good way to go. And, you know, remember this is 2015, so this is early days in, in terms of 360 and VR and like how, how to like tell a story. So uh, I went, we went over to her house, I did an interview with her, which lasted about three hours uh, and, and some glasses of wine. And 
she's amazing. And and from that, we came back with a recording that I could kind of edit. And I edited it, I guess, into about a 15-minute um, story. And then from there, and, 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 the reason, and the way I knew that it was going to be a good VR film or, or, or a piece of work was that when I first got people to just listen to it on a timeline, they were like in fraud. They were like, you know, as a, as a piece of audio alone, it was, it was gripping and, it was, and you could feel the emotion in her voice. So I knew from that point onwards that, that as soon as I started layering sort of uh, immersive imagery on top of it and putting the, the audience in some of the environments that she's describing, uh, that we would have a really good film. And I think a lot of the power of that film is its simplicity. A lot of the you know, the first half of it is very kind of, almost kind of reconstruction. She talks about the events of that day up until the bomb goes off. So you're on the platform and she's saying, well, I was on the platform, you know, the train pulled in, all this kind of stuff. And then when the bomb goes off, we go into a very much more abstract world uh, where we did very, a lot of kind of home VFX, you know, using lights and, and stuff and actually using the camera itself in camera effects where we took the camera and put it in weird environments filled, you know, I went outside and filled a tent with smoke at night and like and then had flashlights that I was like kind of like poked holes in this tent and put flashlights through it and so all sorts of kind of weird stuff because we didn't really know what was going to work and yeah the resulting film I think is is actually you know I still kind of look back at it even like you know four years later and think maybe that was the best thing that I made you know it's kind of like because it worked and people really reacted to it a lot of people were often in tears and feel really connected to her and I and and, uh, and so yeah I was in the end I was very proud of the piece of work and uh, it was lucky enough to uh, play at the first ever kaleidoscope tour that they did that Rennie did and and then it got selected for IDFA uh, in Amsterdam who run the doc lab there which is a fantastic uh, place to show immersive work not just VR, but all sorts of different kind of types of immersive work. And I was really super proud to be at IFA. It was kind of like somewhere that I'd kind of fantasized about being. Uh, and then from there, it just continued uh, to get selected for different different things. That was great. It's very interesting. It wasn't too long in between completion of this project and your next project, which I believe was um, a grant commission from Sheffield Doc Festival. And the project is called Indefinite. Can you tell us more about how that idea came about? So I, I you know, I finished Witness in the summer of uh, 2015, but uh, I, you know, I knew I wanted to make something else, and people were interested in in having me do that. Uh, Sheffield Docfest, which is a, you know, which is a great place, great institution, and also, you know, another place that is that runs a really interesting sort of VR and immersive sort of uh, documentary showcase. Uh, they had their first ever DocFest commission and I applied for that. And I applied for that with, um, with Indefinite, as you said, which was a story about um, indefinite uh, detention in the asylum system in the UK. So it's important to understand, I think, before you know, we talk about the film specifically, is that the UK is the only, or was the only country in Europe. It might still actually be this: that the only country in Europe that does have has no time limit on how long it detains people. So we've got people, you know, in detention for years, waiting for their cases to be reviewed and heard. And whilst they're in there, you know, as soon as they get in there, they get their phones taken away. They have access to 
solicitors that the state give them access to. They have to fight basically a court case. And some people have got family here. Some people have different claims, you know. And and it's just it's just a very sort of broken, harsh system that kind of puts people in a situation where, where they end up feeling desperate and uh, and are mentally scarred from it. So I thought this was again like a really interesting thing to to look at in terms of VR and put people listen to these people's stories and put people in, in that environment and, and, and also open, you know, expose something that I hadn't really seen much press about. And then from there, um, what was really lovely was the New York Times took an interest in it and then licensed it for their uh, VR app. So, you know, the New York Times have a great VR app. And, uh, and then did an, an opinion, I think it's called an opt-ed, which is a big opinion piece in their paper about asylum detention in the US uh, as well and had somebody write an article about that and, uh, and, and this kind of fitted in alongside it. So I was really proud of that. I was really proud of that. And, you know, and, and, the, uh, and the piece ended up going to the Melbourne International Film Festival, Dubai International Film Festival, Nouveau Cinema, all these different places. I mean, loads and loads of different places. And, and uh, I managed to get to talk about the film but also the the situation. And uh, I guess one of the great things about that is that the charity that I'd worked with, Detention Action, they were able to show it to their, the people that kind of invest in their charity. You know, they they survive on like uh, benefactors and they really responded to it and uh, it helped them secure some, some extra funding as well. So, I mean, all in all, it was a really good, it was a really good experience. And above all, I think, meeting the people that were in that film was really rewarding and trying to kind of understand their story and, 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 and be faithful to their story. And also, you know, also again, like Witness 360 in, in terms of sound, you know, we did this very much sound first. We did it with interviews and long interviews with each of these people really unpacking their stories. And the people really wanted to talk about their whole lives, not just the detention. And the detention marked a particularly like kind of nasty part of their life, but a lot of them had actually pretty traumatic lives all the way through. And, and, you know, hence why they had left their own countries to come here. And I think part of the shame of it was that they came here for something different. And actually, you could tell the shock and, and shame that they felt about being placed in prison, essentially a prison, was, was almost something worse, you know, than some of the crimes that had been perpetrated against them in their own countries. Because... I guess they'd never really been labelled a criminal before. And that's kind of how it feels. So, yeah, I mean, not without getting too deep about it here, Ollie, but yeah, yeah it, was, it was good. But, you know, it, it was quite draining and, and I haven't actually done anything of my own until this most recent uh, piece for a while. And I ended up sort of kind of doing a lot of stuff. You, know, you and I went to Uganda to, to do the comic relief work. Uh, I'd done some stuff at the National Theatre, BBC... Um, all sorts of kind of stuff like, you know, and some branded stuff that we're really proud of as well. But it's only been this last year that I felt like I had something else that I wanted to make in VR, which is an original sort of documentary. Which is a perfect segue to my next question. So you guys working on your next big project, which is non-profit, which I believe is a commission as part of Creative XR competition. So obviously this project is still very much in the making, as you touched earlier 
you just finished picking up your last shots in South London earlier today. So can you tell us a little bit more about how the whole idea came about and maybe talk a little bit more about the Creative Exart competition as well? The working classes in London are being sort of uh, forced out in a sense that that if you are somebody like a teacher or a nurse or just, I don't know, like a builder or somebody who works on cars, somebody that, that keeps life going, you know, it's very hard to earn enough money to live in this, in, in this city. And that's kind of reflected, uh, I think, in a lot of the regeneration of housing estates in, in London and across the UK, where, where big estates that used to be, you know, the preserve of social housing uh, that were there to help the working classes or people that were struggling and provide them homes are being are being sort of torn down. And what's being put in their place is not necessarily something that they can afford. So that was sort of like my interest in it. And, you know, like any sort of project that I start approach, it's actually more of a learning process for me at first. So indefinite, which we were talking about earlier, it's like I didn't know anything about detention asylum, but I found out a lot about it. And actually what, what your initial, maybe what your initial opinion might be of it or what you see in the headlines, once you really go deep into it and you work with people, you, you start to see the nuances in it. And it's the same for this. You know, I had known about the Aylesbury Estate since I was a kid. It's a huge estate in South London. Uh, it's next to a big park called Birchers Park, and it was the largest housing estate in Europe. And so it's always had a little bit of uh, press attention. It's always been a fairly notorious estate in terms of crime. But once you start looking deeper into it and looking about how it was made, how it was designed, the focus that it's had in terms of uh, politics and people that have made announcements there, you see that actually your view of the estate has been skewed and... And in that sense, part of this project was uncovering what was the true, true story about this estate and looking at its history, but also looking at what's happening now where it's being regenerated and, uh, and what that means to the community that lived there. So this project, Common Ground, which is about regeneration in housing estates, I took, uh, created a digital catapult. We're running a scheme called uh, Creative XR, which uh, they put out in 2017, late 2017. And lucky enough, we were, they put it out to the whole of the UK. And I was lucky enough to be sort of selected as, I guess, one of 20 projects that would get some funding uh, to make a prototype. And so we made a prototype, which we showcased in March of 2018 at Digital Catapult. And from that, uh, we were lucky enough to be selected of one of, I think, five, maybe, five or six uh, projects that would get funding from Arts Council and... And um, and so we went into sort of full production of it from that point. The experience of kind of going through that Creative XR experience has been really rewarding, actually, in terms of it's the first almost like an incubator sort of experience that I've, I've been through in the, the first time that I've actually, you know, been given money to create a prototype to prove a concept and then been able to then take that concept and go forward. And I think in terms of VR, that's really important it's a really important thing. You know, loads of people want to make VR, you know, and are pitching to make VR. And, and, and it's, it's hard to say, it's hard to get people to give you money because it's a risk. And you, know, you can understand 
from people that have money or arts institutions, you know, they've only got a limited budget. And I think the, some of the barrier that has been with like, in, certainly in this country in terms of funding VR, uh, has been about like, well, everyone wants, kind of, wants to take a risk, but they also want a guarantee. And the best way to get some sort of guarantee on your risk is to just invest a little bit to get a prototype. And I think, I hope, you know, our prototype was obviously successful and it means that we've been given more money to, to go on and do that. And that's been a really great experience. If I'm asked more about the methodologies, technically and creatively, that you guys been using in order to create this project, was it guided by certain technologies that you were able to use as part of your prototype process? Or was it something that you envisaged initially and you just stayed on the course in terms of um, how you wanted to tell the story. The project is quite unusual in the sense that it involves a huge amount of 360 footage combined with photogrammetry. There are interactive elements. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of the thought process behind that aspect? You know, I really wanted to make quite a dense project that had a lot of texture to it and a lot of references. And I think the first sort of kind of thing that we really wanted to do was was incorporate archive into the 360 environment uh, because archive plays a, a big role in the history of the estate and uh, and and so you know part of the initial creative xr sort of process was was like we wanted to play with archive we want to see what we could do with archive but video photos illustrations all sorts of different things and you see that in what we're creating now we uh there's like schematics and plans and there's uh, visualization drawings, which are a, a little bit like the visualization drawings that we found uh, from the original estate artwork. And all of these kind of different things have come into play and we've found ways of incorporating those into the 360 experience so that it feels like a seamless experience. You know, if you look at a, a normal documentary where you have lots of talking heads and you have, you know, someone's talking about something you, and then you instantly you know cut to some archive of it well you know the question was well how do you do that in 360 you know i can't just cut to archive but i can place archive in the same environment that i'm talking about so the idea came about well can we project archive onto the side of the buildings could the building then sort of and the environment become the canvas in which uh those those textural elements that enhance the experience of the documentary uh, can that be the environment that those things are seen in? So I think we successfully did that. And there have been some examples, you know, of people doing similar stuff, I think, in 360, but not very many. And I think, you know, the stuff that we're doing is, is, is kind of interesting and, and kind of new. But the other stuff was that, you know, we wanted to make the documentary about the estate, but the estate to be on the estate, which you were on today, you know, it's it's an interesting environment. It's very, um, it's hard to, I think, you know, even in 360, I think it's hard to capture just exactly kind of what it feels and what it looks like and the and the nuance of the detail of some of the some of the degradation and of, of 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 the place. And so we looked at like photogrammetry, and we had not done photogrammetry before, and. Um, you know, we'd mainly worked in 360 video and, and part of this project was like, well, how can we move from 360 video, which we think we're really good at, into room scale? And how can we sort of blend what we're good at into that unity world? And, uh, you know, so photogrammetry was definitely something that we wanted to do with this. And so we captured uh, uh, different parts of the estate. We've captured uh, someone's flat. We've captured a stairwell. We've captured lift 
area and stuff like that. And those become really rich environments that really make you feel that you're on the estate. And obviously the six degrees of freedom that you have with that adds just more sort of, more sense of presence, I would say, uh, and allows us to tell a story in that way. But then once you start kind of playing with that sort of kind of real world environment and you've worked with a Unity developer, interaction suddenly becomes something that you need to think about. And I was keen for these, uh, for the interactions with your hands to be something that felt very natural, something about being inquisitive. So it's not so much about, you know, uh, gamifying it. It's more about saying, uh, push the door open if you want to push the door open you know like uh, press the button on the uh, on the on the lift to call down the next contributor so for example that you know you push you, you're in a photogrammetry environment you push the button on the lift it feels very real but then you hear the lift coming down and you cut inside to the lift and we're back in 360 video and we're on a journey with our next contributor. So it's things like that that I was kind of interested in trying. And, you know, as you said, we're in the midst of doing it. And there's still definitely questions like, will this work? Will it work going from 360 video, which is stereoscopic, into something that's a little bit more room scale and back out again? How are those things going to work? It's been super challenging. I mean, super challenging. And actually, you know, at times just really daunting, like a kind of a sea change in the way of thinking. You know, we're working with a company called All, uh, All Seeing Eye. We're doing the Unity development. And, you know, I'm asking them to do sort of new things that they haven't done before as well. And we're doing certainly like loads of new stuff that we haven't done before. And it's actually quite a large project in terms of the amount of contributors, the amount of footage. You know, it's easily going to be around 25 minutes long. So putting all this stuff together and actually seeing if it works is, is where we are now. And uh, and I definitely know that we've got some really great stuff. It's just whether, you know, at the moment, it's like, will it work as a cohesive uh, experience? And that's what we need to, that's where we need to get to, basically. Just want to come back to the, one of my previous questions about the Creative XR and similar competitions offered by various entities in the UK and around the world. Being one of the people who had an opportunity to be involved with a number of projects of this kind where you were receiving initial funding to kickstart your project, in your opinion, how important these kind of initiatives are in terms of supporting the grassroots content creators? And not only that, but also more established companies and professionals like yourselves? Yeah, I mean, I, to qualify what you just said, like I've only received funding twice, CreativeXR and Sheffield.Fest. Other than that, we've self-funded everything. And even the Sheffield.Fest, we had to self-fund most of that. And, and, and that needs to be said, I think, in terms of like, and also I don't even think, you know, the CreativeXR is great, but, you know, the amount of work we're putting in it does not necessarily reflect the amount of money that we received. And I've, you know, and I'm not like kind of moaning about that or anything. It's like, that's just part of the course. I think if you want to work in something that's innovative and, and, and stuff and you, and you have a desire to create something, then you've got to, you've got to do that as long as you can make it work in other ways. And we try and do that with our commercial work. That will hopefully pay for any offset that, that we have. But, you know, what you're saying about the grassroots and, and the funding, I mean, I think is really important. It is really important. What I've found over the last kind of four years is that there's been a lack of funding. And I think it's only now in the last sort of six months, really, that 
that that funding is starting to come into place. And I think you, you can see definite moves from the, from the government in terms of Audience of the Future, which is a big um, initiative here. The people that work at uh, Immerse UK and Innovate UK really kind of pushing schemes and funding opportunities for um, the immersive industries in the UK. Whether that necessarily translates purely to content creators, people that have that have something artistic that they want to do in that medium, uh, I'm not sure yet. You know, a lot of it is focused on technology and positioning the UK as a technology leader. So I think there's definitely needs to be a crossover there where arts and technology allow new work to be made in this medium because I think there's a lot of people that need to that want to make stuff and I think Creative XI is a really good example of that and you know it's good to hear that the BFI are starting to fund VR and stuff like that you know and, and of course you've got the National Theatre who are making stuff and that's really really important as well as a, as a as a big arts body like really kind of working in this space but I think there needs to be more and I think actually in, in terms of companies like us I'm seeing certainly more opportunity within that space to do more interesting work and actually it coincides with maybe a seemingly lack of enthusiasm from more of the brand and commercial companies that were really hot on VR you know in 2015, 2016, you know, because it was the new kid in town and they wanted to make a marketing splash. And, you know, we made some great work with that, but you see less of that. Um, mainly because, you know, obviously the medium itself has limitations in terms of marketing because not many people have headsets. It costs quite a lot of money. Is it going to give you a return on investment as much as maybe paying someone to do an Instagram post that has like thousands, you know, millions of people like following it? I want to go back to the couple more questions about public funding. Based on your personal experience, do you think even though you only got a part of the amount of money you needed to complete the production, even if it was insignificant, do you think that was enough to tip you over and convince you to actually go ahead with the project versus you just had an idea and you would love to do it, but actually you can't do it because you've got a number of commitments and requires loads of resources. Do you think it provides that kind of essential nudge to creative to actually go on and do things they never tried and just have that freedom of creative and technical expression, essentially pushing the boundaries and, and doing a lot of research and development in the field. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the simple answer is yes. You know, we were talking earlier actually about, you know, R&D and how much time we spend as companies, like small companies, uh, funding our own R&D. And, and it's quite a lot, you know. And uh, But it's by no means allows you to go out and make fully formed original pieces of work that are technically uh, difficult. It allows you to work out maybe how to do stuff and maybe test some stuff. But, but you know, a project like this is big and I think it has an audience and it has, and it has an importance in terms of, you know, I want to make stuff that has uh, a social impact to it, that talks about things that I feel are important. And I want to do it in this medium to see if, if this medium works for that sort of stuff. And we wouldn't be able to do it if Creative XR hadn't said, here's X amount of money. Uh, and it was a good, I mean, you know, it's a, a good amount of money, uh, but it did still require us to get match funding from different partners. But of course, once you've got some support from the Arts Council and Creative XR, then it's easier to go out and find that, that match funding. So, I mean... It's more than a nudge, but it's also, I mean, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense of that without that, it's very hard to experiment. It's very hard to, I feel like with Creative Excel, I've been given 
the time and the space to try things that might not work. And money is obviously a big part of that, but the money almost pays for the time and the space. Because if I don't have the money, then I'm too busy thinking about how to keep the walls from the door. I need that. I need the money just to be able to really kind of focus and concentrate and, and make mistakes. And um, the thing that I've loved about the VR industry ever since we started has been that people allow experimentation, allow failure, to accept that if something doesn't work, that it was just a stepping stone on the way to something else. So obviously we're talking about uh, public funds, um, you know, the money that taxpayers, um, UK citizens contribute on a regular basis. I, I would like to ask your opinion. The reason the government investing in this sort of stuff is because they want to position the government, uh, the country to be a leader in immersive tech. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily like taxpayers money you know we're not taking money from the nhs or anything like that it's like the government is investing this money because they see that they will get a return in it and that return will be more a bigger industry you know tax breaks for like the film industry mean that more films get made here tax breaks for tech companies or investment in tech companies means that more tech hubs will be here and that's a big industry you know you know the uk would love to have a Google in this country or, you know, something like that. So it's, it's you know, an immersive tech is a really great, good fit for the UK because the UK are great storytellers. We're good at doing that. And, we're, and we, are, we, we are sort of innovative and pioneering. And in many cases, we're not beholden to big corporations. So there is, there is a lot of opportunity to create new, new tech, new work that is, that is original, that can be then exported to the rest of the world. And that's what the investment is. It, I wouldn't say it was taxpayers' money necessarily. It, it's certainly one of the key verticals to invest into creative industries in order to boost the economy. But that's exactly what was my question about whether or not you've observed some kind of occurring and reoccurring themes in terms of um, government's agenda to, to boost and nudge certain industries. So I'm going to assume that projects for social impact would play a quite key role, uh, projects that uh, stimulate research and development and projects probably an overarching kind of theme would be to literally investing into creative industries in order to boost the economy because it's um, quite frankly an ongoing process for any government that is trying to create an environment with a healthy um, economy for their people. So based on your experience, um, have you observed that the funding that is available for for creatives and perhaps immersive content creative in particular has a specific agenda, be it research and development or economy stimulation or projects with a social impact. Is, is this something that stands out or we're talking a quite a variety of things that tend to be funded across the spectrum? I think at the moment, I mean, as I mentioned, I think we're just at the beginning of people sort of really funding VR in this country for, for research and development for understanding what it is. I think getting different industries, whether it's the film industry or the theater or like documentary or you know, academic institutions to kind of fund VR has taken a while, like all these institutions, including the government, take a while to actually get to the point where they are able to justify that funding, then release that funding. It takes years. So I feel like we're in, we're starting to be in that space now where, where you know, um, the government and different sort of kind of education bodies are looking at 
investing in that to learn more about it. So, you know, there's been a recent sort of fund for documentary, looking at sort of new voices in documentary and, 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 and exploring what, what the future of documentary might look like with VR. Um, the audience of the future uh, schemes, which are being run by uh, Innovate UK. I think they're very much sort of about how the UK can become a leader in immersive technologies. And I think that, that, that straddles both sort of the creation of technology and also the creation of uh, work or creative work that, that, that can be exported. And I think that's about exporting and it's about creating an industry. And, I, you know, and it makes a lot of sense to do that. And I'm super happy that they're doing that. And, you know, and I think as a content creator, we just need to find our place within that and find the sort of funds that work for us. You know, we're not going to we're not going to apply for a fund that is going to be, you know, to patent a new way of capturing. I don't know, you know, I don't know volumetrically when there's companies that that do that. But what we will do is use that company to create something really, really cool. So you know, I've seen sort of lots of different lots of different things, and I think in that sense, you know, it's just finding the right sort of fund. You know, often I think with funding, you have to you have to see an opportunity and maybe work around what it is you want to do to make it fit that fund. And that's part of the sort of funding game a little bit. But I think that's just, you know, just being savvy. I don't think that's, there's any secret to that. It's just like, if you've got something that you want to do and somebody's got a fund that might work for it, then you have to really focus on how, how you make that work. And that might be something that is like, you know, it might be the Wellcome Trust or some somebody like that who want to fund some research into the effects of VR on PTSD or it might be, you know, it's just finding the right thing for you and how that can push your craft forward. And, and it might just take you into something completely different and unexpected that you didn't think that you'd be doing. And that in itself is a broadening of the industry. And it's just like going back to the very start of this conversation where we talked about us as EC Films being a traditional production company working in music and TV and stuff. And that VR, even though we did it ourselves, we didn't have any funding to do it, VR sent us down different roads. And here we are like four years later and, and we're applying for funding for R&D and stuff like that, which we would never have done. But it's a, an extension of our industry. It's the, it's the building of more skill sets, the ability to employ more people, work with new people. And I think that is, uh, that's exciting. And, and that's something that I hope grows, uh, you know, beyond where we are now in 2018. Every interview, I tend to finish with same question. What would be one piece of advice that you could pass on to other people, perhaps who are less experienced, just starting out, um, hungry to get stuck in? But in this case, I actually have two questions. And one of them is, what would be one piece of advice for people who... Uh, in a similar position where they are about to make that choice, maybe maybe they're in full-time employment or freelancing and they, they're inspired to launch their own company, what would be one piece of advice that you could pass on that could help them? And, and the second question is, ha having experience with um, applying for this funding to create your own project, uh, what would be one piece of advice that you could pass on to other people who perhaps were less successful in getting funding or 
perhaps never tried and um, keen to apply for future opportunities. So there are two questions for you there. Well, I'm going to answer the second one first. For people that I guess that are applying for funding for VR and, 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 and want to make something original, I think the, the first thing to say, I think, is if you're kind of starting out in VR, like don't be obsessed with the tech. Tech comes into it and there's a lot to learn. But I think the whole thing about, I think one of the barriers for people entering into VR is that they think they can't get their head around the tech. And actually, there's really good people that are already working in most of those bits of the industry and you're not going to do it all yourself anyway. What it is about is, is about having approaching this medium with fresh eyes and thinking and seeing it as an opportunity to create something really, really interesting and understanding the medium first and how your voice can, can resonate in that medium to create interesting work and then finding the right people to work with and collaborate with to do it. So if you're applying for something, I think you need to, one, realize that competition is going to be stiff because there's a, there are very few funds out there and there are now increasingly a lot more people that want to make stuff. But if you are going to apply, make sure that you've got a project that you truly believe in, that you think is going to work in this medium. And it's why is it in this medium and not some other medium? Why is it not in film or theater or, or an audio book or whatever? Why is it has to be in VR? And be certain about that. And then build the team around the idea. So if the idea requires unity development, then get the but your best unity development guide, people that you like, get a good post-production workflow, get, get all the people, get your best 3D, uh, 360 camera team. You build people that have experience, that have done it before, and then put your spin on it and, and use your voice to create it. And, and, you know, I think that is how you kind of start to answer the question of funding because people are, not only is the competition high, but people are risk averse. If I'm going to give you a hundred grand, Ollie, I, I, you know, I want to know that you know what you're doing, that you've got a great idea that's going to work in this medium and that you've got people around you that are going to help you deliver it. Otherwise, yeah, maybe I'm not, maybe I'll go to that person who feels like they've got that. So you've got to build a team. And I think that is, is, a, is a good way of approaching funding. Uh, advice for starting your own business. I would say, I would say, first of all, I don't regret starting my own business. I could never work for somebody else again. And which maybe, you know, is like, you know, maybe people will play that back to me when I'm looking for a job like in two years' time. But no, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like, uh, you're going to be a night. You never know. Yeah, exactly. It's like, never say never. Starting my own business was, is definitely the best thing that I've done in my own career. It's allowed me amazing opportunities. I would say that when you start your own business, it's very easy to get sidelined with all the bureaucracy and bullshit that comes with running your own business. It's very tiring. You have to be very focused and you have to be very respectful of the people that you are working with in that business, especially if you're going into business with other people. That's you know, and uh, that's a very important relationship. And I think possibly the first piece of advice is only go into business with people that you truly trust, that you truly think are, are going to have the same values as you do. The second thing I would say is, is remember when you're doing it, why you did it in the first place. It's going back to that idea of being sidetracked by the bureaucracy of running a business. If you started a business because you wanted to make your own films 
and get somebody else to do the invoices and the and the receipts and all of that and the VAT returns. Don't do all that yourself because you'll end up doing that full time and you won't be making your own films. Like work with good people, and I think that's an easy thing to say, but you know you'll you'll work with lots of different people, and when you find people that you like, that you trust, that you have a good time with, that but that also do a good job, then keep those people close because you can collectively build something from that and they might have their own businesses or whatever it's about it's about keeping those kind of networks and working with with good people and finding those people that share the same values as you i think if you do that then there you build yourself an opportunity to and an environment in which you can create something really special i can certainly tell that you speaking from the perspective wealth of your personal experience and i really appreciate you sharing with us i think it's brilliant and there's lo- loads to learn and think about um finishing up our interview um it's mid-november 2018 it's coming up to christmas and christmas is usually the time when we reflect on what what happened in this year and also think about what's going to happen next year my next question is what is in store for you darren personally and for for your colleagues your team your your co-founder the company in general Obviously, we're in the midst of uh, making this project and it's due to be sort of finished at the end of this year and probably won't be showcased till early February. And then it will have it will have its own little life. You know, it will go around, hopefully go around festivals and I'll get to talk about it and, 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 and that'll be fun. So there's lots to look forward to. And I think we are sort of looking at how, on a business sense, you know, creative sense, it feels very rich that we've got lots to look forward to, lots to work on. From a business sense, we have to look at where our industry is going, what sort of funding we can get, where the money in VR is um, to support us while we try and make the work that we need to do. We're also sort of trying to refocus ECT Films a little bit more fairly on the other sorts of work that we do, which is traditional work, uh, not shot on 360, not VR, like, you know, like 69 uh, video uh, branded content. So we're looking to kind of rebalance that and, you know, just be happy, I guess, and and, and have a bit of money, and uh, you know, and uh, and make good work. I think for me... You know, we've been in business now 12 years and I think for the last four years I've been the happiest that I've been because we've been making work that I'm really super proud of. And that was kind of why I wanted to run my own business. That's that's important to me. I want next year to continue in that frame of mind, you know. Darren, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed the interview. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Darren Emerson. This episode was produced by Abigail Bircham, Oliver Cadell, and Lisa Daniels, and included music by Nobs Bergamo. If you enjoyed listening, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. The podcast is also available on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes, and follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.